you are following along on your device, uh, then it's the book of Acts, and it's the, I use the King James up here, so that's the one you want to select on your device. If you're looking for it in your Bible, Acts is in the New Testament, so the second half of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. So that's how you, that's the directions. That's all I can give you. Google Maps won't help you. Uh, but uh, if you're looking for it, that's where it is. Acts chapter 4, however you follow along, whether it's in your Bible or in the notes that I provide or on the screen, they all say the same thing. So uh, whatever is the most convenient for you. Acts chapter 4, we got about halfway through this chapter, if you recall, and it's uh, one message with four parts. And this is the last part. We're going to pick up where we left off. But just to give you kind of a recap, we saw the incarceration of Peter and John. They, the lame man was healed at the beautiful gate there at the temple, and he was walking and leaping and praising God and caused quite a, a stir, quite a scene there. And Peter and John preached the gospel, and people got saved. And then uh, the officials and the religious leaders and the temple guard swooped in and arrested them and threw them in jail because it was too late in the day to hold a hearing. And so they stayed in the jail overnight, and that was their incarceration. And then we saw their interrogation, how they questioned Peter and John, and they inquired about the power, by what power, what authority do you do these things? And Peter's reply was, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. He preached power in the name of Jesus Christ. The council attempted intimidation. They told them, uh, you may not preach in this name, but Peter and John said, we cannot help but preach in this name. Literally, they said, we cannot not preach in this name. We don't do double negative in English, but they do did uh, in their language. And they literally said, we cannot not speak in this name. They had a higher calling and a holy commission. And so they would not be intimidated. And because they couldn't find any lawful reason to uh, detain them, or to charge them, or to punish them, they had to let them go. And so that's where we're picking up. We're finishing the message today, but we aren't finishing the chapter. And that's because the end of chapter 4 goes with the beginning of chapter 5. One of the things that you need to remember when you're reading or studying your Bible is that the chapters and verses are there to help you they weren't there originally, all right? They are just a helpful tool that got added later because can you imagine how difficult it would be to find verses if we just said, turn to the scroll of Isaiah about halfway through, all right? So, uh, so it's a helpful tool, but just know that they're just tools. They're not inspired. And so we're not going to finish the chapter because the end of chapter four goes with the beginning of chapter five. So, Notice, finally, this morning, the invocation, and that is verses 23 through 31, the invocation. It says in verse 23, you can follow along with me as I read, and being let go, they, Peter and John, went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they, the church, heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? 
The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Notice, first of all, this morning, the complete report. The complete report. Peter and John are, are released from the Sanhedrin there. They are sent on their way. They are set free again. And the very first thing they do is return to the company of believers. They go back to church. Do you know the phrase, you can tell a man by the company that he keeps? You can tell where the heart and the passion of the two apostles of Christ were, was by the company that they kept. They, they went back to the church. They assembled with the other believers. The apostles did not bear their burdens alone. They didn't win their victories alone. They brought it back to the church. They gave a full report to the assembly of believers. They included the family of God. They got together with the body of believers and they shared their mission with these people. I want you to notice, and maybe I stretch things a little bit here, but isn't it interesting that even from the beginning of the church in its infancy, we see the principle of Scripture backed up with the precedent that the apostles themselves set. God did not intend any lone wolf Christians. God did not intend for any child of His to go it alone, to be an outlier, to be a renegade, to be a lone wolf, to be isolated. And if you study uh, the heroes of the faith, in church history, you will find that though there are men that have been called to stand for a matter in seemingly, seemingly isolated circumstances, they were still surrounded by and supported by the church. There are always other believers involved. There are no lone wolf Christians. We are called to stand together. We are called and commanded to encourage each other. We are called and commanded to regularly and purposefully get together with one another. Hebrews chapter 10 says in verse 23 that we should hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. There's that stand part, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. We have trials that we face as believers. We have uh, difficulties that we face as believers. We have opposition that we face, even as the early church did. And those trials and those difficulties uh, bring us together. They cause us to depend on one another. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
We are called to bear each other's burdens. We are called to encourage each other and help each other and get together. Far too many Christians have discounted and deserted the precious gift that Christ has given to us. Christ gave us his body on the cross. He died in my place and your place. He took your sin upon himself on the cross so that you would be free from the guilt and the shame and the penalty for your sin. He paid your penalty. He died your death. He satisfied the righteous judgment of God. But there's something that Christ did for us that we all too often forsake and forget. He gave us the church. We are the called out assembly. We are his body. We are called to gather together. We are called to help one another. We are called to encourage each other. We are not called to be lone wolf Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says in verse 25 that there should be no schism in the body. The church in Corinth had a little bit of a problem with that. And then he goes on to say, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. This is what the church is to look like. We are the body of Christ. We are equated with uh, a physical body in which all of us have a different part and in that a different role to play. But if you stub your toe, all of your body suffers. You feel it throughout your body. And as a church, when we suffer, we suffer together. When we rejoice, we rejoice together. We are stronger together. But in our country in particular, comfort and convenience, and understand what I'm saying, the crutch of religious freedom have allowed Christians to be driven apart and scattered. Charles Spurgeon said, pressure from without drives the members of the church together and so promotes holy love and when love and zeal come together, then there is a such blessed unity of action and such a power in every effort that great success must follow. Pressure from without brings unity and a bond within. When opposition comes to the church, petty issues fade away. When we're uh, wondering if at any minute the authorities might break in and arrest us, we really don't care what color the carpet is. Those petty things fade away. When we focus on the body of Christ instead of on ourselves individually, disagreements disappear. And when we care more about the commission than our own individual complaints, the church prospers. One author wrote that all too often today, believers gather as though attending a concert or a party. There is little sense of urgency and danger because most of us are comfortable in our Christian walk. If more of God's people were witnessing for Christ in daily life, there would be more urgency and blessing when the church comes together to meet. God never intended for his people to go it alone. And though you might feel isolated, and though you might think you're the only one truly serving the Lord, you're deceiving yourself 
just like the prophet Elijah once did. Elijah had a very literal mountaintop experience on Mount Carmel. And he thought in that moment that the nation of Israel was going to get back right with the Lord. And even King Ahab seemed like he had a change of heart. And then Jezebel got involved and said, The Lord do so unto me if you're not like one of all my prophets that are dead by this time tomorrow. All of a sudden, his life is in jeopardy. There's a price on his head. And so now here Elijah is alone, discouraged, disappointed. He's despondent. He's afraid for his life. And he's hiding, pitying himself in a cave. And God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's response, Lord, I've been very zealous for you. Lord, I've been serving you. Lord, I've done these things for you. And the people have turned their back on you. And they're serving Baal. And I and I alone and left. I'm the only one that's been faithful. And now there's a bounty on my head. Just take my life. And God showed Elijah his power. You know the, the story. There's, he was, the mountains quaked and there was fire and there was wind and all of that. God showed Elijah his power. Maybe to get Elijah's focus off himself a little bit. Then he shows Elijah his mercy, and in a still, small voice, what are you doing here? Elijah, I'm paraphrasing, he tells Elijah what? You're not as unique as you think you are. You're not the only one. There are 7,000 men just as faithful to me as you. Elijah, you're not alone. And Christian, you were never meant to serve God alone. This has never been a solo mission. It's a group endeavor. I pastored in Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids for eight years. I was assistant pastor for a couple of years before that. When I first started, uh, my pastor didn't have a lot of uh, friends in the ministry and and I felt kind of isolated as I was I literally went from a part-time assistant pastor, working in a factory four days a week, to full-time senior pastor overnight. And that was interesting. And I felt kind of isolated. I didn't have any friends in the ministry. I didn't know any other pastors in the area. I grew up in that town, uh, but knew very few pastors. And another pastor came along, and he started reaching out to guys my age, and we started getting together and having breakfast together and sharing with each other. And you know what I discovered? I really wasn't that unique. I really wasn't that unique. These pastors would share, and turns out they're going through the very same difficulties that I'm going through. They have the very same struggles that I have, some of them more. And they're not, I wasn't all that unique. It cured me of Elijah syndrome. I'm the only one. 1 John 4 tells us this. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. In our English vocabulary, the word hate carries a very strong connotation. So you might be able to say, well, pff, I don't hate anybody in the church. Of course I don't. But the word hate can also mean to hold in disfavor. 
to be disinclined to, to have little regard for or an aversion to. You might not be seething with hatred towards anyone in the church, but there are Christians today who have very little regard for the church. In their life, in their, in their priorities, in their conversations, they're just really not inclined to God's people. They have an aversion to other Christians. If anything else comes along, they're not in church. It's just something that they fit in. They're not inclined to be there. You don't favor the church with your presence. Doesn't that speak to your love of God's people? John 13, verse 35 says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. You can't accomplish this at home. You can only accomplish this in church. And the apostles went back to church. It's the very first thing that they did. They reported the whole account to the assembly. They gave the complete report because church, serving the Lord, taking a stand for Christ, preaching His name is a family endeavor. And by that I mean it's a family of God endeavor. The church, the body together. And they went back to church. And then notice the church's response. The church's response. It says, when they heard that, the church, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. There's three aspects of their response. Notice, they focus on the prophecies fulfilled. The prophecies fulfilled. This church was not surprised by the opposition they faced. They were not at all shocked. They knew that this was coming. They knew it was inevitable. Why? Because they knew what their Bible said. I love what one man said. He said, instead of regarding the attacks as directed against them personally, they looked at a passage of Scripture. They knew what the Bible said. Jesus promised in John 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The church remembered the scriptures. They remembered that these are just prophecies being fulfilled. And they remembered Psalm 2 in particular, which says in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 5, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision, then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. They were quoting Psalm 2 together. There are some scholars that believe that they were actually singing a hymn together, that this was a song that the church sang together in response to their threats 
uh, the threatenings of the religious leaders. Before they had prayer, they sang an appropriate hymn. We don't know for sure. It doesn't say that. But it's possible that they were singing this psalm. You know, the scriptures are truly a treasure. They enrich our singing. They inform our lives. They give us encouragement and purpose and hope. And when the church first faces opposition in Acts chapter 4, they look to the Bible. By the way, they had way less of it than we do. Many of them couldn't read. And few of them would own a copy of Scripture. And yet these people looked to Scripture and were encouraged by Scripture. They had faith in the Scriptures. They had faith in the God who spoke the Scriptures. The Creator of the universe has given us, the Bible says, all things pertaining to life and godliness. You can find that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2-4, through 4, where it says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You have the answer key to all of life's questions. You have the manual for life. You have everything you need to know to live your life with confidence in a world that's getting darker. You've got it already. Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It illuminates your way. It teaches you where to go. It is the only instrument you need. One author wrote of the famous explorers that set out to cross Antarctica. In 1914, Ernest Shackleton and a team of explorers set out from England to do something that no one before had accomplished, to cross Antarctica from one side to the other across the South Pole. Disaster struck when the ship, the Endurance, became entrapped in the ice and eventually sank after the ice crushed the hull. They were marooned on nearby Elephant Island, and there seemed little hope for their survival. So... In a desperate attempt to get help, Shackleton and five others set out in a 20-foot lifeboat across some of the most dangerous and storm-filled waters in the world. It was an 800-mile journey to South Georgia Island where help could be found. So for 15 days, in a 20-foot lifeboat, for 800 miles, the men battled the treacherous seas and massive storms with waves swelling up to 100 feet high. They had only a compass and a sextant. Frank Worsley, who had captained the Endurance, navigated their course until they safely reached land and found help. Shackleton got another ship and returned to rescue all of his men and became a national hero in England for his courage and persistence. All of us are attempting to make our way through a dark and stormy world, through life that is difficult. And ever since the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, mankind has struggled with how to make the right decisions about a future we know nothing about. 
The only way to ensure that we don't go astray is by running on instruments. By sticking to our guidebook. You have to trust God's word over your feelings, over your own wisdom, over your experience, over any advice that someone might give you because this is the compass. This is the truth. This is God's word. It's without error. It's true through and through, and you can always trust it. And if you follow its direction, you will never go wrong. These people looked to Scripture in times of difficulty. We need to run together as a church. We need to run to the Scriptures as a church. And then notice they also understood the purposes of the Father. They understood that there were prophecies being fulfilled and they understood the purposes of their father. It's a very simple but profound truth. God is still in control. God is still in control. And they took these circumstances as a part of God's plan. They trusted in God's purpose. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good to them that, are, that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. If you take that promise by faith, this truth, understanding it and believing it, will bring you matchless confidence in life. Why? Because there is not a single thing in your life that you're facing that God is not in control of. Everything God has, can make part of His plan, everything God has a purpose for, everything God will use for your growth in your own life, God is under, has everything under control. A great illustration of this is Job versus Elijah. Not as in like a battle or anything, but just thinking about the two stories side by side. Job, of course, in the very beginning of the book, he's got a great life. He's the richest man probably in the whole world. And in just moments, God allowed Job to lose everything that he had, including his family, but his wife. The Bible tells us, that God allowed Satan, the devil, to afflict Job, to test Job. And so it says in Job 1 verse 16, while he was yet speaking, one of the servants, there came also another and said, the fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Servant after servant came in and said, all of your cattle are dead. All of your sheep are dead. All of your children are dead. But in this particular one, it says, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep. That's interesting. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah prays on top of Mount Carmel. After the prophets of Baal had spent all day crying out to Baal, that he would answer with fire from heaven and burn up the bullock on the offer, the bull. And so Elijah prays in 1 Kings 18, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire, the same word for fire as in Job, of the Lord fell 
and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Where am I going with this? I find it peculiar and interesting that the devil was able to cause fire to fall from heaven and consume every one of Job's sheep. But on the top of Mount Carmel was not able to burn up even one bull. Why? Because even the devil cannot work unless God permits him to do so. You know, without Christ, I don't know how people make it. You could never face this life on your own. But Christian, since your father knows it all, knows everything you will face, and has allowed that you should face it, you will never face it alone. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The church took this as the purposes of the Father. He allowed this. He was in control of this. And then notice the prayer of the faithful. Notice what they prayed for. The prayer of the faithful. And I'm getting towards the end here. They prayed for boldness, not deliverance. They prayed for boldness not the deliverance. They asked for divine enablement, not escape. And God gave them the power that they needed. God does not promise to take us out of every situation. He does promise to be with us in every situation. And the church did not pray for deliverance. Folks, we don't need deliverance as often as we think we do. More often, we need the strength that only the Spirit can provide to go through those troubles so that we will come out on the other side closer to God and more like Christ than we were going in. James 1 says, My brethren, verse 2, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, mature, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. They prayed for boldness, not for deliverance. They prayed for the power of God, not of men. They didn't pray for talent. They didn't pray for dynamic debate skills. They said, God, give us courage to do what you've asked us to do. Give us courage to spread the gospel. This was never about what we bring to the table as people. This has always been about, from the very beginning, God working in us and through us, and they pray for power from God. We don't need more of us. We need more of Him. And that's precisely what the church prayed for. That's, and look at the reply they got. They got the celestial reply. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. We know God hears our prayers, but these Christians had it confirmed in a very special way. They had a supernatural event. They had a localized earthquake. 
It was obviously supernatural. There might be some liberal scholars that try to explain this away. But this was a confirmation of God's power and blessing. And we see that backed up with Scripture. God's voice shook Mount Sinai when he gave the law to Moses. His power flattened Jericho with a thought. His presence shook the mountains around about Elijah. And the earth shook as the stone was rolled away that sealed the tomb of Christ. And now, at a church prayer meeting, the church, the ground, the earth shakes. God shows his power when we pray. One of my favorite quotes that you'll probably hear me quote thousands of times is from E.M. Bounds about prayer. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. Hudson Taylor was setting out to China to begin his missionary work, and he hadn't even gotten there when he was in deep trouble. The, sh the ship was in danger because the wind had died and the current was carrying them to reefs, which were close to islands inhabited by cannibals. And they were drawing so close to the islands that the cannibals started building fires on shore for the potluck. Some of you aren't with me anymore. Everything the sailors tried wasn't working. And the captain said to Hudson Taylor, he wrote this in his journal, we have done everything that can be done. A thought occurred to me, and I replied, No, there is one thing we have not done yet. What is that? The captain asked. Four of us on this ship are Christians. Let us each retire to his own cabin, and in agreed prayer, ask the Lord to give us immediately a breeze. Taylor pre prayed briefly, and then, certain that the answer was coming, went up on the deck and asked the first officer to let down the sails. What would be the good of that? He answered roughly. I told him we had been asking a wind from God and that it was coming immediately. And within minutes, the wind did begin to blow and it carried them safely past the reefs. And in his journal, Taylor wrote, Thus God encouraged me before ever landing on China's shores to bring every variety of need to him in prayer and to expect that he would honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give help in each emergency and situation. It was that same man who spent 51 years of his life as a missionary in China that said that the prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. In answer to their prayers, there was a supernatural event, an earthquake, and then a spiritual empowering. God granted them their humble request, and they were all filled with the Spirit of God. In response, they preached the word of boldness. This was a special filling of the Spirit for service, and they preached the gospel. Christians that are filled with, spirit, with the Spirit have always preached the gospel. That's what Spirit-filled Christians do. And we need the Spirit of God to accomplish what God intends for us to accomplish. One of my favorite men of history of the faith is George Mueller. George Mueller was a man that understood how to be dependent on prayer. 
George Mueller said, I look upon it as a lost day when I have not had a good time over the Word of God. Friends often say, I have so much to do, so many people to see, I cannot find time for Scripture study. There are not many that have more to do than I. For more than half a century, I have never known one day when I have not more business than I could get through. For four years, I have had annually about 30,000 letters, and most of these have passed through my own hands. Then, as pastor of a church with 1,200 believers, great has been my care. And besides, I have had charge of five immense orphanages. Also, at my publishing depot, the printing and circulating of millions of tracts, books, and Bibles, but I have always made it a rule never to begin work until I have had a good season with God and His Word. The blessing I have received has been wonderful. How often are we full of care instead of being full of prayer? The response of the church in Acts 4 is the commandment of Scripture in Philippians 4, 6. Be careful, full of care, for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Billy Sunday said something simple, but it's profound. He that is a stranger to prayer is a stranger to power. He that is a stranger to prayer is a stranger to power. And this church, at their midweek prayer meeting, received the power of God. Church, as American Christians in particular, we need to remember we are not called to go at this alone. Our faith extends beyond ourselves personally, beyond our homes. We are a church, a body of believers working together for the gospel of Christ. And when things come, we need to take Scripture at its, at its word. Do you know what the Bible says? These Christians weren't surprised, they weren't shocked, they weren't discouraged. They quoted Scripture, and they took it as God's purpose. And then they prayed. They prayed. I don't know what you're going through, but you're not allowed to go through it alone. That's not what the Bible says. You have a church body to encourage you, and to help you, sometimes to exhort you, to point you in the right direction. You have a Bible to tell you all of God's truth, to illuminate your path, to give you wisdom, to help you make good decisions. And you have prayer. Because of all these things, there's no reason that any of us should ever be alone. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we take some time and reflect on these things, Lord, that you would empower our church. Lord, that you would cause us as believers to reach out to one another. 
that we would depend upon each other, that we would help each other, that we would bear one another's burdens. Lord, that in difficulty and trials, we would look to you. And God, that we would be a people of prayer. I don't know how the Lord's working on your heart, but I would encourage you to take this time for a moment and respond and do business with him as the piano quietly plays. This moment's for you. <laughs>